Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come together to worship you, to, to study your word. And, uh, Lord, I just pray that you would just have our hearts focused on you, that we would uh, learn, that we would uh, learn how to apply the things that we uh, study. Uh, Lord, that our hearts would just be filled with, with love for you and uh, the great work that, uh, that you have done and are continuing to do. And uh, Lord, just that you would be with us, that we would be edified with these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we got Luke chapter 21 and 22 today. So we'll just start by reading Luke 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this, this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. All right. Well, I'm going to try to follow basically the pattern Jacob did, but I apologize I didn't have handouts with questions, so, but uh, hopefully we can just kind of look at the text and, and try to ask some questions, um, and if any of you have any good questions you want to throw out, you are welcome to. Um, but the, the chapter starts off with uh, the, uh, the widow's offering. Um, so the question I had is, what sets this widow's offering apart from other offerings? Because she gave all that she had to live on. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so the others, they were giving out of their wealth, just a portion of it, and uh, she was giving everything that, that she had to live on. Now, the next question is, why does Jesus point this out? That's a little bit of a tougher question. That's not a, that's not a, let's see, if I can remember the, I don't even remember the categories, what they were called. <laughs> let's see, logic is like the second. Grammar, one. logic, and grammar. Okay, yeah, so it's not a grammar question, that's more of a logic question. <laughs> so why, why does Jesus point this out? Contrasting what the rich were doing, they are putting their offerings in. Okay, he is definitely contrasting that, but why is he doing that? What's... What's he aiming to do there? Well, it's, it's if you look back at the end of chapter 20, mm-hmm. it seems like he's contrasting that with uh, what the scribes did, you know, mm-hmm. walking around trying to sort of promote themselves, even talking about uh, they grab the best seats and stuff mm-hmm. like that. They devour widows' houses right. and, and stuff like that. Um, and yet then they contrast it with the widow who gives everything sort of behind the scenes, but yet gives everything she has mm-hmm. you know, to the Lord. So it's sort of that contrast of seeking to use God to, for, to fulfill your own pleasures versus mm-hmm. uh, living sacrificially to Him. Right. So setting up the, the widow basically as an example of this is the way you should be. Yeah. as opposed to what the, the the scribes were doing. yeah, uh, It's it's interesting. I don't know if you guys have, have encountered it, but uh, John MacArthur has taught on this passage and has has presented a, a 
a fairly different interpretation of it. Um, not so much a commending the uh, the widow as basically another denunciation on the the scribes and the religious system. That basically that his position is that um, Jesus isn't commending her at all and doesn't think that she should be doing what she's doing, but basically that she's been forced into it uh, because she's been basically duped by these religious leaders to think that she should give everything she has to live on. Um, and you know that's probably influenced a lot by John MacArthur's uh, disputes with the prosperity teachers who, who do that very thing. Um, I don't know, I mean, as, as I was looking at it, I was... You know, I, I wish Jesus would have been a little more explicit about why exactly he's he's bringing the example up. But I mean, it, it is interesting because you know you can you can look at it either from the perspective of um, the the widow is a contrast to the the wickedness of the of the scribes and and these religious leaders, or as an example of their wickedness, and that you have this poor woman who's duped into giving you know more than she really should. So. I, I don't know exactly what the answer is. I mean, it, I think it is true that God doesn't expect um, Christians to give every penny they have, you know, uh, to the church. I mean, that's, it, you know, it, he, he expects you to, you know, be able to provide for your family and things like that. Um, but it's also a very biblical principle that, um, that we should give sacrificially. I mean, one of the things I think of is, um, when uh, the plague was coming on Israel and uh, David was going to King David was going to go make an offering uh, to to stop the plague that that God was bringing on Israel because of because of David's sin, um, he goes to this threshing floor where he's going to make the offering, and he he tells the guys like, hey, I'm gonna I want to buy your threshing floor so I can make the offering here, and the guys like, well, I'll just give it to you, and David's like, far be it from me that I should make an offering that costs me nothing. So, I mean, David understood the principle that it's like, yeah, you, you don't just, like, give out of your surplus, you know, where it doesn't cost you anything. It, for, you know, a real offering is something that actually actually does cost you something. So I think both principles are, are definitely biblical. So I don't know, anybody have any further thoughts on, on that? Anyway, that's a... I thought that was an interesting... Uh, contrast in the way that John MacArthur interprets that as opposed to the way most people interpret it. Um, so we move on um, to uh, Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple, uh, talking about wars and persecutions through through verses basically 5 through 19 there. We have, we have that stuff going on. Um, so what warnings uh, does Jesus give in this section? Sorry? 5 through 19. Yeah, 5 through 19. Seeing that you're not led astray, is that what you're talking about? I'm sorry, maybe I need hearing aids. Yeah, okay. <laughs> are you talking about like when he says, see that you are not led astray? Yeah, there's a, there's one. It's like he's he's warning them, don't be led astray. Okay. I found another one in there. Anybody see another warning? Do not be terrified. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's exactly right. So, 
Um, so he's, he's giving these warnings. Don't be led astray. Like false teachers will come. False people will come and will claim, I'm he and the time is at hand. So he's like, no, don't be led astray. And um, don't be terrified. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty relevant one, right? I mean, we see things happening in the world and some of them look pretty scary. Um, Jesus says, don't be terrified. You know, these, these types of things, are they're going to happen. Um, what promise does Jesus give in uh, verses 18 and 19? Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm jump, sorry, I'm jumping ahead here. First thing is, what does Jesus say will happen to his followers in 16 and 17? Relatives will turn against you, mm-hmm. and some will be put to death. Yeah. And you'll be hated. So all sorts of persecution, betrayal, uh, all sorts of bad things are going to happen to him. But then, what is what is the promise in uh, 17 and 18? Let's see. 18 and 19. What promise do we have there? Not a hair on your head will perish, yeah. but by your endurance you'll gain life. Yeah. Now one thing that's really interesting there, and I, I still remember the first time somebody pointed this out to me, what did Jesus just say was going to happen to some of them? Going to die. He said they were going to die. Yeah. So how do we reconcile that? What, what's, what's going on there? Some of you are going to die, but not a hair of your head will perish. <laughs> Any thoughts? I think you can understand that death and perishing are not mm-hmm. one and the same. Right. You know, that he's talking about uh, losing the uh, your soul eternally mm-hmm. in terms of perishing. Right. And, and that won't happen even though some of you will die. Right. You won't necessarily perish. Right. Yeah, so he's, he's focusing on what's actually important, your eternal life. Um, yeah, some of you are gonna you're gonna die. You're gonna be physically killed, but ultimately that doesn't matter because um, you know you're you're not you're not ultimately going to pay. So that's a that's a that's a pretty neat promise there. And it's like yeah, even if you die, you're you're still not gonna perish. Um, let's see. Any any other thoughts on that section there? I mean, I know there's a lot of the stuff. I, I apologize if anybody is wanting like a an in-depth discussion of end times <laughs> stuff here. So well, where's that fit in the <laughs> Yeah, let's stick with biblical Christianity. We're <laughs> a millennial. Yeah, he forgot his maps. Yeah, <laughs> or charts. But yeah. I do think I do think it's encouraging though, just looking at everything that's happening politically and in the world in general right now, and how much people are. In fear, I mean, mm-hmm. how much fear you're seeing in people, and to see these promises of to not be terrified and mm-hmm. that we will not perish. Right. And I think that a lot of people could use that reminder right now. Right. Yeah. If you if you ever turn on, um, you know, political talk radio, which I I try to avoid as much as possible, <laughs> there's a lot of. 
I guess, fear-mongering yeah. that goes on there. You know, I was like, oh, no, you need to do something because this is so horrible. But, uh, but yeah, um, Jesus is very clear. It's like, you, you shouldn't be afraid. So, um, you know, I mean, not that we should be just completely inactive. but Right. You know. But I think it's cool, too, that he acknowledges the fact that something might happen to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, because I think that sometimes I can hear Christians talk about, you know, well, God's in control, and he is, for sure. But they talk about it in a sense of, like, so nothing bad is going to happen to you. Like, it'll all work out, and it'll all be fine. Right. And they don't acknowledge the fact that it could all not be fine. But right. eternally, right. you are taking care of, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's important to make that distinction because, yeah, that's, people can have the false idea that it's like, oh, well, I'm a Christian and things should just always go my way. Yeah. And, you know, if anything <laughs> bad happens to me, then God has somehow let me down. And that's not the case. Well, it's interesting. Verse 19, he talks about, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. So, you know, that whole idea of endurance isn't just a sitting back and right. it's all going to work out. There's a right. sense of, you know, obedience and mm-hmm. perseverance in the midst mm-hmm. of difficulty and you know, so it, it is very much a struggle, but absolutely, we know the outcome. Absolutely. So we move on, and Jesus uh, foretells the uh, destruction of Jerusalem, um, and he uh, talks about uh, when he returns, these signs of the sun and moon. I mean, even then, it's like. I need, I need to be careful because it's like, is that is that talking about the destruction of Jerusalem or is that talking about his, his final coming? I know there's debates on that. Um, and, you know, and you see, um, you know, verses uh, 26 and following, you know, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world. Um, and then uh, in verse 28... What does Jesus say that our response should be when we see these things? Straighten up and raise your head. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep, your redemption is drawing near. So, definitely, um, we should have a different attitude about it. And we should not be, um, not be fearful. Seems like there's uh, quite a different contrast between his first coming and his second coming you know the first being very quiet mm-hmm. in a manger you know known to uh, just a few and sort of the outcast and here's like everybody's gonna mm-hmm. know it's gonna be very obvious that he's right. coming back so right yes um, let's see we have the the lesson from the fig tree um, what what do you think um uh, Jesus' point there is uh, when he's talking about the fig tree. Is he talking about the, the restoration of the physical nation of Israel? Maybe not. I know when I look at it, I, I think, you know, He's, he's, there's no real significance to the fig tree analogy other than just saying it's like hey you can you can look at signs and you can see okay this means this is coming as like in other places he talks about you know people observing 
you know, the way the sky looks. And it's like, okay, yeah, you know what the weather's going to be based on the way the sky looks. Um, I think sometimes people people get a little carried away with the, you know, the fig tree represents, you know, X, and um, I think we need to be careful about stuff like that. Don't you think, too, Chris, I mean, I was just thinking about this as you were talking that, um, you know, that the signs he's talking about are pretty terrifying things. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think for many, their hearts will melt when they see such things. But he's now repeated twice, you know, the end of verse 28, that your redemption is drawing near. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, then in verse, what, 31, about that the kingdom of God is near. Mm-hmm. And so for the Christian, in the midst mm-hmm. of those circumstances, it's there's great hope. Right. Because it means that uh, Christ is returning and, yeah. and stuff like that. But so yeah. not to give in to that natural inclination of fear, right? But to rejoice, right. But right? And that's hard to do. So I mean, that's why we need to like study passages of scripture like this to to remind us. Because if we just if we just look at the things around us and they look scary, then our natural tendency is to be afraid. And then that final section there, uh, verses 34 through 38, um, what warnings uh, does Jesus give in this section? Watch yourselves. So what are, what are we to what are we to watch ourselves for? Well, sort of giving in to the the pleasures or the cares of the world. I mean, if you know, he was talking about how we could respond in fear, but we could also respond by just sort of getting caught up in the pleasures of life. Mm-hmm. And, right. And uh, it, like you said, it'd be sort of like a trap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that is that is a real danger of just like just being busy with your life, either the cares of your life or the pleasures of your life, and it's like you know the 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 true eternal things just kind of fall into the background while you're like, you're just busy with stuff. So well, it's interesting. He says, "Have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place," whereas he's already warned them about these things are going to take place. You're going to be in there, mm-hmm. so. Uh, definitely a warning that don't get yourself wrapped in where I mean mm-hmm. you fall along with the rest of the crowd. To, you know, sometimes you'll do things out of well, sin, but preservation. Mm-hmm. Well, as long as I fall along here, I'll be okay. Right. You know. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, and how cool is it that God knows us so well that He would continue us over again? What's going to happen? And I thought it was interesting that He said to straighten up. For is coming, and then here he's talking about watch yourselves, and he <laughs> he obviously is very clear of what our tendencies are going to be mm-hmm. to slack off when he is not present. Right. Yeah, it's almost like he knows our hearts. <laughs> okay. Any more thoughts on um, on chapter twenty one there? <laughs> Okay, chapter 22. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And chief priests, uh, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death 
for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the, the greater, the one who reclines at table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, 
Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. <clears throat> now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to, the, to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. All right. Lots of stuff there. <laughs> So, let's see, we start off with um, the plot to kill Jesus. Um, so, question is, uh, what was the difficulty that the chief priests and scribes were trying to overcome to kill Jesus? They didn't want an uproar. Yeah, they didn't want an uproar? Yeah. Yeah, it's the, so... Basically, if they just grabbed him during the day in the temple, 
like all the people were there um, and they were afraid uh, of what the people would do if they did that. So they were trying to find a way to get him when it was, you know, nobody was around, nobody was seeing what happened. And so that's why they, that's why they uh, were paying Judas for the inside information about where he was staying. Um, let's see. Then we have uh, the Lord's Supper, um, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Um, so what, what significance does Jesus tell the disciples that the elements of the Passover meal have? I'm sorry. I maybe I do need to hear it. I can't. I can't hear you. Um, so, so Jesus, Jesus is is like doling out the elements here. And what what significance does he give to to the to the elements? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not. It's not a. It's not a. It's not a trick question. Yeah. It, it should be an easy one. Yes. So yeah, so you get the you get the bread represents his body. You have the wine represents his blood. Um, so, but this isn't this isn't what the the Passover meant before, right? So why is Jesus giving new significance uh, to this ancient Jewish feast? Yeah, it's the new covenant. That's exactly right. So there's a there's a transition happening here, and. Um, it's not just you know the, the old meaning of the Passover of the the redemption of the people uh, of of Israel out of Egypt, but there's this new significance of the new covenant um, in Jesus's blood, um, his body uh, given for them and his blood poured out for them. When you think about it, I always found it interesting to read in the Old Testament that it's an everlasting covenant that they're supposed to be mm-hmm. keeping. Mm-hmm. So it only makes sense that as Christ comes in, that's who makes it everlasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's see. We also have in this section, uh, Jesus spoke of the fact that he will suffer, that his body will be uh, given, and that his blood will be poured out. Uh, does Jesus view this as an avoidable outcome? He's pretty explicit here in his language. No, it's pretty much unavoidable. Right? So what, is, what does he say? It's in verse 22. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Right. So it's been determined. So um, his his suffering, his death, uh, it has been determined. The next question is, if it's been determined, does that absolve the betrayer of responsibility? What does Jesus say in respect to that? 
woe to that man. Yeah, woe to that man. Yeah. Anybody have any thoughts on that? I mean, that's a that's one of those one of those uh, difficult concepts in Scripture, but it's one that you clearly see in Scripture that <coughs> things are determined uh, by the the full ordination of God, but it doesn't absolve the the people who act in those things from the responsibility of the evil things that they do. Well, I mean, you see Judas, when you kind of get an idea that he may not, this might not be the first time he had extorted things, Mm -hmm. but uh, you see even before this time that Judas is already in the works of making something happen. So Mm -hmm. Judas has already made plans. It's already in the works. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's pretty much a done deal. Yeah, I know. you certainly wouldn't wouldn't want to get the idea that Judas is like, well, I would really just like to serve Jesus, but you know, the predetermined plan of God, I just have to betray him. And that's not that's not the way Judas was looking at it. It was like he was he was in it for the money, and that's like, oh, I could make a I could make some extra money here by by selling Jesus out. And you know, he's not he's not concerned about the consequences, um, at least not concerned enough to make him you know. Uh, be loyal and do what he should. He's willing to betray Jesus. So maybe I'm wrong. So yeah. Anyways, but weren't we talking about the fact that Judas was skimming money off the tithe, anyways? For mm-hmm. that? And so it kind of fits in with his character too. This is not like an out of the blue incident that yeah. we've never seen him be money hungry before. That's right. Yeah. And Luke, Luke also in in the book of Acts uh, records. Uh, Peter's sermon where Peter talked about how Christ died by the plan of God mm-hmm. you know the, um, the the definite plan of foreknowledge of God as a matter of fact that's what he said but then he said you crucified and killed him you know by the lawless men so mm-hmm. there again you see that same idea mm-hmm. yeah and he, and he even like you know lists off Pilate and I don't remember if it's in that exact passage where he refers to Pilate and Herod or if it's in I know there's one of the passages in in, yeah. in the book of Acts where he specifically said, you know, that these these men did exactly what God had predetermined that they would do, but there's still their acts were evil. Um, and Judas, he he did what he wanted to do. He he nobody nobody held a gun to his head and said be evil. He chose to do what was evil because that was that was what was in his heart was was to do evil things. Um, and he's responsible for that. But that, but there's still the op, the you know the the reverse side of that, where you see that this is exactly what God had ordained to happen. Um, so we see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility both presented as as truths in Scripture. Anyway, so that's just a. I just kind of wanted to bring that out as the, this is one of the passages where we see that um, displayed there. Um, so here we have Jesus talking about the fact that somebody's going to betray him. And then um, how do uh, the disciples react um, when they hear about this, that somebody's going to betray Jesus? Well, then they try to figure out who it was that was going to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, they're like, hey, which, which one of us is it? <laughs> And then what does that lead to? 
what does what the discussion lead into? I'm going to dispute over who's the greatest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, you can just imagine him. It's like, oh, my, wait, surely it's not me. I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm considered one of the greatest of the, of the disciples. It can't be me. You know? I've been in Jesus' center circle. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can just see that. And so they're just, they're obviously just not getting it. Um, what I think it's funny that it's a dispute. Like we tend to think of it being like this conversation of, oh well, who's the greatest? But it is a full-on fight. And I can just think of times like with children when you walk in a room and you state a fact, and immediately it turns into this dispute over who must have done it or who obviously would never do that because they've never thought of it. And I'm like, it's just so funny to see those childlike <laughs> behaviors come up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you would almost think that they would, you know, just be thinking about it's like, oh, you're you're gonna die, the, you know, you're gonna be betrayed. This is horrible. But and instead, they're kind of just like they're focused on the wrong thing there. Um, let's see. Um, we go on down a little bit, and um, we see Jesus uh, predicting Peter's denial. Um, now, how does how does Peter react when Jesus tells him that Satan uh, desires to have him? He denies it and says, "Not only do I deny that I'll do it, but I will go with you to prison or death. I'll I would do anything for you." Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's very much in keeping with you know the way their conversation had been going. You know, Jesus kind of rebukes him. You know, and talks about you know. The you know the way you should behave and you know should you be lording it over people or should you be a servant and then you know and then he brings this up to Peter and you know Peter's still just like nope I'm I'm you know I'm solid I'm with you I'll, I'll do anything. Um, so I wonder maybe this is silly but uh, I mean Jesus says someone's going to betray me. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that Peter thought he was the one that was going to betray him versus deny him? Or did they did they recognize in the moment those being two separate incidences? Like, could that be where the offense is taken greatly? Ah, I, that's an interesting idea. I had never even thought of that. Because I don't know that I would separate those in the moment. But right. when he says you're going to deny me, that it's like that means you're the one I was, talking, one about I was talking about when yeah. I said somebody was going to betray me. You know, um, it's I, it's possible that Jesus or that that Peter made that connection. I don't know. I. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts. That that, that had never occurred to me, but that seems possible. Because we, we, in hindsight, look back and know what the full betrayal right, yeah. is right, like. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's, it's like, like, oh, yeah, betrayal, that's that's what Judas did, you know. Right, yeah. Denial, that's what Peter did. So yeah. it's easy for us to separate those as two separate yeah. uh, things. So that's interesting. That is a that is an insightful question. I, I had never considered <laughs> I remember rightly though, even in there, isn't there some comfort, I'm trying to remember, where he says, uh, yeah, I pray for you that your faith may not fail at the mm-hmm. same time, like he's, uh, and you, when, once you've turned against strength in your brothers, like there, there's a charge in there, there's, there's mm-hmm. a, a promise in there in a way. Yeah, that is, that is true. Or him, even in his... Yeah, I guess... Moment. Well, there's a... And, and, uh, 
in that time frame, a woe, which he said woe to man, uh -huh. a woe carried a lot of weight. Uh -huh. I mean, it's a it's a condemnation, almost a damnation. Yeah. Whereas, so I mean, there's this, there is comfort in what Christ is saying, even though he's rebuking uh -huh. Peter. There is a right. comfort in what right. He's that, that is true. So is the the contrast of like this person's going to betray me and woe to that person, and you're going to deny me, but you will be restored. I mean, that that could have been enough right there for right. Peter to see that there's. A Although that would mean he was thinking really clearly and dissecting. <laughs> That's true. Like when I hear, if I heard you're going to be one to deny me, I don't know that I would be sitting here going, well, but he did say something about comfort, so maybe that's not. <laughs> but you know, it does. It's possible, but I just think it's funny. Thinking about all this too, it also shows you that probably what Peter had in his heart was just as wicked as what Judas was. There's mm -hmm. really no distinction between the two, but Christ intercedes on the behalf of mm -hmm. Peter. Right. You know, but so Peter couldn't really look at Judas and say, I can't believe you would do that right. because honestly Peter was right. experiencing the same thing. It's exactly. just his savior intercede on his yeah. behalf. That's yeah. True. That's a that's a that's a very humbling thing there. It's like that would you'd think that would just like for years afterwards he would you know, anytime he would think about, you know, Judas he would think, yeah, but I didn't really do any better. Yeah. And so. yeah, he was arguing about who's the greatest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and verses 35 through 38, um, what contrast does Jesus make between the former situation and the current one? contrast does Jesus make between the former situation and the current one? So he's saying, when I sent you out before, did you lack anything? And they're like, no. And he says, now I tell you, if you're lacking this, do this. Right? According to my notes, my Bible. <laughs> Cheating here. Uh, it says the future will not be as easy for the disciples as in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're they're not going to have exactly the same level of provision. Um, they're not going to have Jesus directly with them. And uh, and another thing is, I, this isn't explicitly brought up, but I mean, it's something that clearly is the case that um, the the hostility was primarily directed against Jesus during his earthly ministry. And then once he's out of the picture, it the, the hostility is very much against the apostles. <coughs> so they're, they're in for a change in the situation there. Um, he also says it's enough. What's that? Well, I'm making sure I'm <laughs> But he says that you'll have that, but that's, that it'll be enough. That the situation will get harder, but they will have what they need, right? Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure you that from this text, but I mean, they they certainly will have enough. But um, I mean, where he specifically says it is enough, he's they say we have, we have two swords. So I'm I'm assuming that that's directly related to you know it's like yeah we got two swords. It's like okay that's that's enough. You don't need to don't need to get any more. Um, I'm assuming. 
I'm not sure, but I mean, certainly it is a biblical principle that God uh, continues to provide for His people even after Jesus uh, is is no longer on Earth. Um, let's see. So, um, verses uh, 39 through 46, um, we have Jesus's prayer. Um, so, what does Jesus tell His disciples to pray for? They would not enter into temptation. Mm-hmm. And then, what does Jesus himself pray for? Cup would pass. And um, even has that that famous phrase, you know, that nevertheless, not my will, but but yours be done. Um, I honestly think that there's misunderstanding on that. Oh, really? Cup passing. I don't think he's praying that he doesn't die. I think that he's looking back at some of the Old Testament view of the cup of death uh-huh. passing. So I really think he's looking at the resurrection. Because he knows. I mean, this whole time he's been talking about he had to die. Uh-huh. I, mean, it, I mean, the whole fulfillment, the, uh, I mean, the, even the eternal covenant uh-huh. between him and, and the Father. Mm-hmm. And everyone wants to try to say, well, his human side was praying that he doesn't die. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's one and the same. I think the human, I think what he's praying for is actually a resurrection that the cup of death passes. Not that he doesn't die. Uh-huh. He knows. I mean, okay. he's been spending plenty of time talking about death and how he's going to have to die. That he uh-huh. has, that there's a betrayer, a betrayer that's uh-huh. going to betray him. Right. That he's going to die. That's part of the You're saying praying that he doesn't stay dead? Right. It, it's, it's the cup of death that there's resurrection. Okay. I think that everyone tries to make it sound like. Well, he's trying to get out of death. He's trying to say, you know, not my will, but your will. I don't think that's I don't think that's the case. I don't think he's trying to pray that he doesn't have to go to the cross. Okay. I know he's not relishing the thought of going to the cross. Mm-hmm. But what he's praying for is that he doesn't stay dead. That is that the cup mm-hmm. of death passes. That he has, that is resurrection. Okay. And to me, it makes sense because. I mean, he's even mentioned here about uh, not a hair passes. You know, what mm-hmm. we talked right, about yeah. earlier. We, we, you know, the fact that you're gonna die. I mean, he's talked about that you're gonna die, mm-hmm. but you're gonna be resurrected. Mm-hmm. Well, for that to happen, God, Christ has to be resurrected. Right. Christ has to be. Mm-hmm. And so, for the same thing, I mean, I, I think that there's a misunderstanding. You always hear everyone say, "Oh, he's trying to get out of death if, if it's possible." Mm-hmm. I don't think it's. That's not what the case is. I think he's trying to pray for the resurrection. That okay. I've never thought about that, so I don't know. I'm not saying that's not right. But it doesn't the whole your will, not my will be done, but your will be done, imply that there is a difference to some extent? That there's some conflict, internal conflicts there? Or well, uh, the, it's, it's one. I mean, yeah, not my will, but I will. But, I mean... Christ and God's will are pretty intertwined. I don't think that there's a. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, no, I'm that'd, that'd be something to speculation. But to me, I, I don't think that there's a lot of difference between Christ's will and the Father's will. I mean, they're, they're pretty, pretty close. But if he's praying for the cup of death to pass, for his resurrection, then. Really, they're showing that both wheels are are coming together. 
Christ is receiving what he's asking for by the Father and he is being resurrected. So, would you see, Bill, I, I, I had not heard that view, okay, so I'm sort of like Katie. Uh, would you say there, though, that there is a sense of uh, struggle and tension in Christ in, in this prayer that he's praying to the Father? Or? Well, there's a, there's a tension, obviously, because he knows he's about ready to be betrayed. I mean, he knows that this is all in, in the works. I mean, he's already given the Lord's Supper, so he knows that this is going to happen. I mean, he, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood. So, I mean, the, the whole works, I mean, he's not, without a doubt, knowing that death's going to happen. Uh, the, the, the tension is, once I die, what happens then? But doesn't he know that it's God's will that he will be resurrected? So right. praying, praying that I don't stay dead, my will, your will, not my will, would imply that those would be different, but if that's the plan anyways. Right, but if you die... The, 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 there's, there's, there's the fear of the resurrection. I mean, uh, it's, yeah. I don't know if there was fear. I mean, I, I but clearly the, the whole comfort to the church, then when especially previous chapters of temp, of the struggles of the trials and stuff, is that you know you're going to die. I mean, you're going to face persecution, but you're going to be you're saved through it. That you're not really going to die. Not a hair's going to pass. So, my point is that there is a struggle, obviously. Yeah. He's about ready to meet the. He's about ready to meet his. You know, his fate. But to pray that uh, you're passing from that. And, and you know, obviously a prayer that, of his resurrection. I think it's been totally misrepresented by many people. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people that agree with me. I mean, that I've read. That's what I've actually, why I've kind of changed my view on this is not because I fell up with Nestor on my own. (laughs) No, I didn't think that. (laughs) But, you know, but it's it's definitely, you know, if you look at it, I mean, uh, makes more sense that of the Old Testament view of the cup of death. Well, that's that's definitely an interesting discussion. Because even Dunn and David talk about The cup, and uh, the same. I think it was David in the Old Testament talks about the cup, cup, and he's talking about death. Yeah. We'll we'll put that conversation on hold. <laughs> We're kind of out of time. I want to hit just a couple more things here. Um, so uh, when Peter denies Jesus. Um, Grammar question: uh, When does uh, Peter remember Jesus's words? And Jesus looks at him. Yeah, yeah. It's when the cock crows and Jesus looks at him, and then he's like, "Oh yeah." And then what's his reaction? He weeps bitterly. Yeah, he weeps bitterly. And then we'll just skip down to one more here. Um, so the very end there Jesus is before the council and what is the council seeking in order to obtain a guilty verdict what are, what are they after what do they consider okay yep that's guilty verdict 
Yeah, that's all they want is just a clear statement that he's the son of God. And what false assumption are they making? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. It's like the only way that makes him guilty of anything is if he isn't. <laughs> and they're just, they've just got it in their mind. It's like, well, clearly he's not. And so all they need him to do is make the claim that he is, and it's like, oh, well, clearly you're guilty then. So, anyway, so lots of, lots of good stuff there. So, but we are out of time. Um, Rick, will you close this one? Yeah, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you have given to us and for the privilege that you have given us, Lord, to gather together to, to study it. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we uh, leave this time that the things that we have talked about, the things that uh, are consistent with your word, that we would remember those things and take those matters uh, to heart and to walk in faith, uh, trusting you. We thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of uh, great difficulty and uh, even circumstances in the future that would shake us to the very core of our being, that even in the midst of that, you love your church enough to give promises uh, to rest and to trust in you, to delight and for us to see that you are accomplishing your purposes. Uh, so, Lord, even in our everyday life, as we encounter things that, that shake us, I pray that we would put our confidence in you and trust knowing that you are God. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for your great love for your bride. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you.